If you have uh, Bibles with you, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of James. Book of James, if you're using one of the uh, black hardcover Bibles that Rachel mentioned just a few minutes ago, you'll find uh, James on page 1011. Uh, last week, we've been in the series now three weeks. Uh, last week, we heard James's call to be both hearers and doers of the Word of God uh, and to be those who put into practice uh, what James calls a pure religion and not a worthless religion. And as James is unpacking that at the end of chapter 1, it includes at least these three things. Uh, bri- uh, bridling our tongue, caring for the vulnerable, and keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Uh, so chapter 2, which is where we're at today, picks that up, uh, continues that line of thinking. One of the ways uh, that we care for the vulnerable is to avoid what we're going to call the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. Partiality uh, is a word that literally means receiving someone according to their face. Receiving someone according to their face. Uh, In other words, it's making surface-level judgments uh, and changing the way that we feel about or or speak with or act toward other people based on those surface-level judgments. And so clearly then, uh, partiality like that is the enemy of caring for people in need, caring for people who are vulnerable, because you can't care for someone that you've immediately written off as less worthy of respect or honor or love. James's specific example here is partiality between the wealthy and the poor. So as part of this month that we're in focusing on different mercy and justice issues, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about wealth and poverty today. Uh, and as you just heard Gene share, um, poverty, uh, food insecurity, uh, all of these kinds of interrelated issues Um, they are issues that are very real and present here in our own communities, in our own backyards, in some ways that we might just miss completely because you don't rub shoulders with people that are in those places every day. So the question for us is, what will it look like for us to be hearers and doers of the Word of God when it comes to these issues of wealth and poverty? And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 13. My brothers, my brothers and sisters is what that word means. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the, f- the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, in the reading of Scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts this morning, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown and displayed both to one another and to this world which you love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these verses, uh, James lays out four arguments against partiality. Incompatibility, inversion, transgression, and treason. And we'll walk our way through each of those with the rest of the time we have this morning. So first, incompatibility. Uh, Partiality is incompatible with the heart of God. All of these mercy and justice issues, you heard Nate reference it uh, earlier this morning as he was leading us through liturgy. All of the mercy and justice issues we talk about this month are image of God issues. That is, they have everything to do with human beings uh, as created in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity, worthy of respect. Partiality is directly at odds with that with being created in the image of God. Because partiality, by definition, creates this hierarchy that attributes more worth and more respect to certain human beings than it does to others. And what's more, partiality is also at odds with the additional beautiful reality that Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, has broken down what the Apostle Paul calls the dividing walls of hostility that that, uh, divide people and put people at odds with one another. In Christ, Paul says in Galatians, there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, nor male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. So in verse 1 here of James chapter 2, James highlights how holding faith in Jesus Christ cannot go hand in hand with this kind of behavior. And I love how one translation of this verse really captures the tone of what James is saying here. The translation puts it this way, Are you really trying to combine faith in Jesus Christ, our glorified Lord, with the worship of rank? Think about that. Are you really trying to combine talking about the Lord of glory with the worship of rank? And what that means is that Christians, as Christians, we believe there is one who is glorious. One who is glorious. And he became poor, making himself nothing, so that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. Belief in this Lord of glory is incompatible with giving different amounts of glory to different kinds of people. The scenario here in James is this. Two different men come to the gathered assembly of the church, gathering of Christians. One of these men who comes in is obviously wealthy, the other obviously poor. The wealthy man, as you heard, is given preferential treatment and respect. The poor man is told to stand or to sit at the feet of the speaker, which actually in many ways is worse than just outright turning that poor man away. The picture of sitting at the feet of another person, that's the picture of subjection. Uh, That's the picture of dominance, of one person over another. It's like how in, in Psalm 110, the psalmist talks about how God is doing that with the enemies of Messiah. He will put the enemies of Messiah at the feet of the Messiah. So not only is this partiality, it's humiliation of this poor man by drawing even more attention to his poverty. And it's something like, sadly, not that many years ago in our own country, 
where if you were a black person riding a bus in this country, you were told to give up your seat at the front of the bus and go to the back or stand so that white people could sit. It's something like that. In verse 4, James refers to this as making distinctions and becoming judges with evil thoughts. And that highlights one of the biggest issues with partiality, both in James's day and in ours. And that is that we make all kinds of assumptions about wealthy people and poor people that lead us to treat them differently. Why are poor people poor? And on the other hand, why are wealthy people wealthy? Your, your gut level, honest answer to questions like those will almost certainly reveal the partiality that exists deep within the recesses of your heart, even if you've learned by self-control not to actually respond that way. Your honest answers will almost certainly reveal the partiality that exists there. Different people answer that question, these questions, in different ways. But generally speaking, every one of us carries either what I would call more of a prosperity theology or a poverty theology. Prosperity theology says that, that righteous people will be wealthy and that unrighteous people will be poor. So if you're poor, uh, that's because you're unwise, it's because you're lazy, it's because you're addicted. And if you're wealthy, it's because you work hard and you don't make bad decisions. Poverty theology is the other way around. It says that the poor are those who are righteous. They are the ones who have forsaken the trappings of material wealth. And so that the wealthy are those who are unrighteous. They have accumulated their wealth by exploiting others. Uh, They are oppressing other people with their wealth. They are using their wealth in selfish ways. Both of those paradigms are reductionistic. Because the scriptures actually give us not two categories, but four for wealth and righteousness. So some wealthy people are righteous. Some wealthy people are unrighteous. Some poor people are righteous. Some poor people are unrighteous. And our attempts to determine who is who based on clothing, uh, based on appearance, based on someone who comes in for the first time in that quick first impression, that will guaranteed make us judges with evil thoughts, which is what James says here. A few years back, which I'm sure some of these are the same statistics that Gene was referencing earlier, the National Coalition for Homelessness, um, or National Coalition for the Homeless is what it's called, conducted a study about why people were homeless. And the findings reveal just how mistaken we can be in those snap surface-level judgments. Uh, It points to the loss of jobs, manufacturing jobs. It points to outsourcing. It points to gentrification, uh, where neighborhoods that were once affordable for people that didn't have a lot of money are redone and resold to people who can afford them and push people out who can no longer afford them. Quoting these findings, one author puts it this way, These statistics suggest that the new average homeless person is an unemployed parent in his or her mid-30s, looking for work, battling personal challenges, as well as those of an entire system that seems to be working against him or her. And if you actually talk to the men and the women, the guests of New Hope, as I know many of you have had the chance to do, um, you will hear exactly this. You will hear many of these kinds of stories. And so... Whichever way you are prone to partiality, whether you are prone to favor the wealthy and think that wealthy people are righteous, or whether you're prone to favor the poor and think that poor people are righteous, let the statistics and the real stories of real people change your paradigm, because as the people of God, we're commanded not to show partiality. Centuries ago, uh, when God revealed his law to Moses, in Leviticus chapter 19, he said this, "'You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor,' Or defer to the great. 
but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're more inclined to give preferential treatment to the rich or to the poor. Show no partiality. And the reason for that is because our impartial impartiality reflects the very heart of God, which is impartial. Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now, knowing who most of you are in the room and where most of you are in terms of socioeconomic standing, here's what I would put forward this morning, that we need to be further challenged by what James says specifically in verse 5. That though God is impartial, the heart of God is with and for the poor in a way that will make the majority of us as wealthy Americans uncomfortable. He has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not that poverty in itself improves your spiritual standing with God. If that were the case, then we should never help the poor because by doing so, we'd be hampering their standing in their place with God. But instead, as one scholar puts it, God is on the side of the poor, not because they are poor as some kind of end goal, but because they are responsive to him and near to the kingdom. Poverty makes you aware of your dependence. It makes that inescapable. And generally speaking, that makes you much more uh, sensitive, much more responsive to the message of life and hope and salvation through Jesus Christ. Where wealth tempts you to put your hope in yourself, to put your hope in your abilities, to put your hope in temporary things like your money or your possessions, poverty locks your hope, fixes your hope in the kingdom of God and in the life to come. You'll never hear someone in poverty worrying, well, what if life in the kingdom of God is worse than my life here? But we might worry that, right? We might worry that. If you're wealthy, your life's pretty good, you might worry that. A person in poverty doesn't ever think that. God is impartial. Salvation is not ever through your socioeconomic status, but only through Christ. But in a way that should make wealthy people like most of us in this room uncomfortable, God's heart is for the poor, and therefore partiality, giving preferential treatment to the wealthy, is incompatible with the heart of God. Second, inversion. Inversion. Partiality honors what is dishonorable and honors and dishonors what is honorable. It honors what is dishonorable and it dishonors what is honorable. So beyond the incompatibility here, there's something just very backward about the scenario that James describes. In this cultural setting, most Christians were poor. That's the churches that he's writing to in Syria and Palestine. Most of the Christians were poor. Wealthy people, not across the board, but in general, would have been those who would oppress poor people like these Christians. In the first century, Roman laws favored uh, wealthy people. Poor people people from lower classes, they could not bring accusations against someone from a higher class. And then when someone was convicted and the convictions were handed out, there were harsher penalties imposed on people from lower socioeconomic classes than those from the upper echelons of society. Now, if you think that's gone away completely, you'd be wrong. That still exists tragically in our world today. But yet, in this context, in the first century, this church is dishonoring the poor man and honoring the wealthy. Why? for the same exact reason that we do, that we look to outward appearance more than we look to the heart. 
that we care about our reputation, that we defer to the reputation and the appearance of others, and we favor those that we stand to benefit from being associated with. It's why you wanted to, when you were growing up in school, or some of you are there right now, it's why you wanted to sit at the cool table. Uh, It's why you name drop the important people that you know. Uh, It's why you share stories and you post things to your social media account, not when you come across the path of a normal person or someone who's like lower than you socioeconomically or in terms of fame or recognition, but the people that are known, that are famous, that are powerful, that are wealthy. But honoring the reputation and appearance of others dishonors the reputation of Christ because it is to esteem what is fleeting, what is futile, at the cost of what is eternally glorious. And that's the inversion. It's completely backward. The wealthy person who is much more prone to reject Christ and the necessity of Christ's work on his or her behalf blasphemes the honorable name of Christ. And yet, James is saying, we honor them? Why are you honoring them? So let us test our hearts to uncover those prejudices, that partiality that exists within them. One example, how do you respond when you hear someone make a brief, cliche, slightly ambiguous comment about a relationship with Christ? Okay, Uh, What if that person is, let's say, quote-unquote normal, at or below your socioeconomic status? If you hear a cliche, slightly ambiguous statement about that person's relationship with Christ, you might be inclined to skepticism, Uh, concern about that person's sincerity of their faith. Now, what if a wealthy, famous person makes that same comment? An athlete, movie star, politician. Time and again, Christians will bend over backward to count that person as part of the team, even making excuses for the public parts of his or her life that is glaringly opposed to the way of Christ. Okay, that is the sin of partiality. And may we never... Honor one who blasphemes the name of Christ just so we can be associated with what the world esteems as important, like wealth or power or fame. Instead, may we esteem all worthy of the same love and respect. May we desire that all people, regardless of their status or their station in life, come to a sincere faith in Christ. James's third argument is that partiality is transgression. It's transgression. It violates the law of love. And James here talks about the royal law. That's his shorthand way of referencing the Old Testament law as it has been fulfilled, as it has been reinterpreted, as it has been expanded by Jesus in places like the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus was asked what commandment was most important, he summarized the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what James quotes here in this text. Partiality is transgression against this law. So favoritism, partiality, that is to sin both against the person and the God in whose image that person has been created. So the transgression itself is a big deal, but here's where James goes with that. It's an even bigger deal because it makes us transgressors. The transgression is a big deal by itself. It's, even, it's an even bigger deal because it makes us transgressors. See, in contrast to our tendency to minimize certain sins as respectable, maybe even specifically the sin of partiality, James points to the unified whole of the law of God. So let's say 
in those snap judgments you might make as someone who is partial, you're right. Let's say you make a right call. That person is lazy. That poor person is lazy. That rich person is an, an oppressive exploiter. The moment that you disrespect, that you slander, that you dismiss that person, the moment you respond to them in a way that lacks love, you join them as a transgressor of the perfect law of God. And herein lies the horror and the hypocrisy of partiality by a Christian. But at the very same time, herein lies the beginning of the remedy. Because sharing an identity as image bearers of God, sharing an identity also as transgressors of the perfect law of God, we are far more like one another than we are different. And at the end of the day, what makes me different from any other person on the face of this earth is not ultimately my decisions, my efforts. It is only the mercy and grace of God. In some ways, uh, we will always struggle to relate to someone who's in a radically different set of circumstances than we are. That's fair. We, people lead different lives, can't be expected to know exactly what another person's life is like, and actually it does a lot of damage to make those assumptions. But be cautious how much distance you perceive between yourself and any other person. The less of yourself you can perceive in another, the more that partiality is lurking dangerously near. Does that make sense? The less you can perceive of yourself and any other person you cross paths with, the more that sin of partiality is lurking dangerously near. As one commentary pointed out, which was incredibly convicting to me, says this, at least in James's churches, the possibility of destitute people entering was real. In many middle or upper class suburban congregations, they would never dare. Why not? Well, probably a ton of reasons, but as much as it depends upon us, and our inability to connect with people because we perceive so much distance, let's heed the, the word of God as laid out by James and learn that we are not that different from anyone who walks in here, regardless of circumstances in life. Ask God for eyes to perceive the incredible amount of commonality, the incredible amount of unity, even when circumstances look so different. Tim Keller, uh, author, pastor, uh, in his book called Ministries of Mercy, which is an incredibly fantastic book, Uh, He puts it this way. When a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, refugees, he knows he is looking in a mirror. He thinks, spiritually, I was just like these people, though physically and socially I never was where they are now. They are outcasts, and I was an outcast. And this brings us to James' last argument against partiality. Not only is it incompatible with the heart of God, not only is it an inversion of honor and dishonor, not only is it transgression, partiality is treason. It betrays the very essence of the kingdom of God, the very essence of God himself, which is that in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. Showing mercy uh, to those who are in need, that is not an optional part of the Christian life. And there are hard words that show up all throughout the Old and New Testament that speak about uh, what happens when you neglect to show mercy for the poor. Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In Matthew 18, 
Jesus tells a parable about an unmerciful servant who upon receiving the king's forgiveness of this debt that he never could have hoped to repay throughout the rest of his life, turns around and immediately refuses to forgive this minuscule by comparison debt from a fellow servant. And when word of that gets back around to the king in this parable, he throws that unforgiving servant in prison for refusing to show the same kind of mercy that he received. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, which James is also alluding to here in verse 12, that how we respond, how we treat the least of these, those deemed unlovable, unworthy by society, on that basis, we're either going to be commended or condemned. And I'm quoting Matthew because if you read Luke, it's even harsher that God's heart for the poor and what, how God reacts to, to his people who don't show love for the poor. And then here in the last verse that we read today, James 2.13, James says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Why? Not because you have to earn mercy from God. You cannot earn mercy from God. But because in neglecting to show mercy, you prove that you have missed the essence of the gospel. It means you really haven't understood It means you really haven't grasped the foundation of our faith that we are not saved because we are more worthy or more deserving or more respectable than any other person, but solely because God has been merciful to us. I'm going to quote Tim Keller again because I think he just hits the nail on the head with this. He says, A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am and so can everyone else. That is the language of the moralist's heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. And Keller goes on to say, a sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. If in taking stock of your life this morning, you're seeing that you're not inclined to show mercy, or that you are particularly prone to sins of partiality. If if in taking stock you see those things in your life, that is almost certainly because you don't have a firm grasp on your own sin and on your own brokenness, on your own need, in other words, for the very mercy of God yourself. And I'll take it just a step further. If in surveying your life, you struggle to put a finger on the ways that you are most prone right now in the present day to be a transgressor of the perfect law of God. If you think about your life as a Christian or you think about sin as something you used to do but you don't do anymore, I think you've kind of overcome that in your life and you're not right on the precipice of, of being a transgressor of the law of God in any, in any given moment of the day. If you see that in your life, if you struggle to put a finger on that, then I would say to you, dear brother or sister in Christ, your besetting sin is self-righteousness. If you can't see it somewhere else, your sin is the sin of self-righteousness. And I say that in love, and I say that in the spirit of holding up a mirror this morning that you might more accurately perceive who you are, that you might more accurately perceive who God is, and that you might more clearly see in that the real mercy of God. And that that clearer, more honest, more accurate picture would fuel for you a lifestyle of mercy that you have never maybe before pursued or maybe even ever cared about in your life. Because the more aware that we are of our own need for the mercy of God, the more merciful we will become. That is how the, the economy of the kingdom of God works. The more aware we are of our own need for the mercy of God, the more merciful we become. 
the gospel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. For the one whose faith is in Christ, the judgment of God against sin falls not on us but on Christ, which means there is only mercy left for you. And our efforts, our pursuit of mercy in response, that's what demonstrates that we truly understand and we truly believe the gospel. In so believing and in so doing, we confirm that we indeed have received and will continue to receive the mercy of God. And so I close with this. May you truly know the mercy by which you have been saved. And may the mercy of God obliterate the partiality that lives deep within the recesses of your heart. And may the mercy of God make us those who display the very same mercy that we ourselves have received. Amen. Let's pray. God, you have been merciful to us in Christ in a way that is a scandal, particularly to those of us who have been successful at life, who have accumulated some money and some possessions, who would be called wealthy according to the global standards and the biblical standards, certainly. We confess that we are prone to reject you and to trust ourselves. We're, we confess that we are prone to even, even believing, even stating that we believe that we're dependent on your grace and mercy to functionally, truly congratulate ourselves for our good decisions and our hard work. And that is not only an enemy to understanding you and the mercy you've shown, that's an enemy for us being people of mercy and loving our neighbor. Forgive us for that, Jesus. Show us our commonality. Break down and obliterate the partiality that exists, not only on the surface, because most of us are self-controlled and can keep that together on the surface. Break down the partiality that lives deep in the recesses of our heart, those gut-level judgments and reactions that we make based on appearance, based on surface-level things. And I pray that even what we come now to do at this table would be an unmistakable demonstration of the commonality of humanity, that Jesus, we are united in our need for you. We are united in receiving the mercy that you have shown through the death and resurrection of Christ, that we are more like one another than we ever are different. And we pray, Jesus, that as we come and taste again of the, the grace and mercy that you have poured out, that you would stir up in us along that other people might experience the same and make us instruments of it. We love you, Jesus. We're grateful for your mercy. Pray this in your name. Amen.